surprise, surprise, we are not going to finish the book of Galatians today. I know, we were on a roll there, and we only have one more message to go, but I'm going to save that for next Sunday, Lord willing. It's because we have two more messages to go in our other series this year, our Gospel Roots series, and the, the, the one that I have planned for November fits just perfectly with the Thanksgiving holiday and the theme of our worship service this morning. You've probably picked up that there's a theme running through all the songs and through all of the, all of the service. I could sum it up with just one word, steadfast. That word steadfast has just been bubbling up in my mind and my heart the last several months. Steadfast. Our God is faithful. Our God is trustworthy. Our God is dependable, reliable, and always true. Our God is steadfast. And as we just sang, so is His love. Amen? And we are called to be steadfast too. Because He is steadfast, we are called to be steadfast as well. Standing firm, immovable, unflinching, persistent, persevering. Even when the times are tough. Or especially when the times are tough. We heard a lot of prayer requests this morning. There's a lot of people going through a lot of hard things. What I want to focus on today from our church's history is that our church has a track record of being steadfast and trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord through difficult times, through times of trial and times of testing and times of trouble. Has this church seen times of trouble? course it has. We're 125 years old. And that means this church family has weathered all kinds of storms. Think about what the world has gone through in the last 125 years. What the world has gone through. World wars, cold wars, terrorism, earthquakes, famines, fast-spreading diseases, Think about what our nation, just our nation, has gone through in those 125 years. How many ups and downs and trouble on every side. I think it was last year when Lita did her history. She she said, here's what we were doing. Here's what was going on in American history at the time. I thought that was really helpful to think about. Trouble. So, of course, our little church has seen its fair share of trouble. Just read through the history book that we just reissued last month for our church. Read the lines and then read between the lines. And you'll pick up on the hardships and the heartaches and the grief that our church family has experienced through 12 and a half decades. For example, the deaths of those that we love. I was just reading in the fourth decade on New Year's Day, 1932. The church's last charter member went home to be with the Lord. Mr. Gus Nelson had been a leader in the church as well as in the community. The church minutes record that there was an emptiness in the church services without Mr. Nelson's presence and leadership. I don't know about you, but that makes me think of the deaths of B. Johnson and Blair Murray in the last couple years. 
Lita wrote about them on pages 32 and 33 of the new book. It isn't the same around here without them. And it isn't the same around here without hundreds and hundreds of others of our loved ones who have passed during these 125 years. And there have been other troubles. There have been financial troubles. I'm told there was a time when we didn't have the funds to continue supporting our missionaries at the level we had planned to. There were times of conflict and division in the church family. Some of you lived through those times, and it hurts just to think about it today. And every family here has experienced trouble yourself, just in your family. Just like Jesus promised. Remember, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And that's encouraging to me, not because I like trouble, but because that's what we see. We see trouble all the time. The Bible says man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. What trouble have you seen? Cancer? Losing a job? Losing a home? I remember when Keith and Penny's home burned, uh, February 2001. I've stood by a lot of your bedsides in hospitals and besides, beside caskets in funeral homes. We've all seen trouble. You've stood beside our family when we've seen trouble. When we lost our first child, Carice Mitchell, in April of 1999. When Heather lost her mom to cancer in 2010. When our daughter Robin was diagnosed with celiac disease in 2014. When Heather was diagnosed with fibromyalgia in 2016. When I had to have surgery for a perforated bowel and I was out of the pulpit for six weeks in 2015. Some of you might have seen that as a praise. (laughs) You've been steadfast by our side when we've seen trouble. The fact is that trouble is normal. Trouble is normal. For some reason, we're always surprised by it. Why is this happening? But trouble is actually normal in this cursed world that we currently live in. It has been since Genesis 3. Ever since the fall, trouble is normal. Suffering is normal. So we, we need to have a theology that's ready for trouble. Suffering can be so bewildering, so confusing, that unless we're prepared in advance for it, we won't know how to respond to it. Unless we, we've got a great, functional, practical theology of suffering before it comes, the chances are that we will buckle under it and flail around not knowing what to do. The prophet Jeremiah knew all about trouble. The prophet Jeremiah lived through the exile of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. In the year 586 B.C., God brought judgment upon the nation of Judah. He had promised exile and warned of judgment for hundreds of years. And Judah had, by and large, ignored those warnings. We were studying this just a year ago when we came to the end of the book of Kings. In 586 B.C., God kept His promise to bring disaster on His rebellious people. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, sacked and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. 
And Jeremiah the prophet was there. He, he saw it with his own two eyes, and his eyes were full of tears. We call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Because even though he had to faithfully deliver a message of woe to the people, he didn't have to like it. It caused him to weep. His message was by and large a message of doom and condemnation and judgment. Read the 50 chapters of Jeremiah and that's by and large what you get. And it made him cry. The worst thing that Jeremiah could imagine was the destruction of his beloved city. The capital of the nation, Jerusalem, the headquarters of the homeland, the jewel, the apple of the Israelites' eye, the location of the temple, the city that stood for the people. When Jerusalem went down, so did the people. And Jerusalem went down. So Jeremiah wept. And he wrote about his suffering. He wrote about this trouble in a little book tucked away between the major prophets called Lamentations. Every few years, I like to take us back to Lamentations. I invite you to turn there with me. It's a little hard to find. If you have a pew Bible, it's easy. Turn to page 817. You'll find it. Pew Bible 817, Lamentations chapter 3. If you don't have a pew Bible and you're using your own Bible, you can use the table of contents or turn to the middle, you'll find the Psalms. Lamentations is to your right. If you found Isaiah, you keep going. Jeremiah, keep going. Then Lamentations, right before Ezekiel. Great big books, little book tucked in the middle. Turn to chapter 3. Today we're just going to read the most famous verses in the book of Lamentations. We sing them all the time. We've already sung them this morning and we're going to sing them at the end of the service. They're very familiar. But they're tucked into the very middle of one of the saddest books in the whole Bible. I mean, the name of the book is Lament, Lamentations, which basically means being sad. It's the book of sad thoughts. Are you glad there's a book called Sad Thoughts in your Bible? I am. We need books like Lamentations. I'm becoming more and more convinced that we need to recover the lost language of lament. Because life is not always happy. It's not always smooth. It's not always pleasant. In fact, life is full of trouble. Trouble's normal. So we need books like Lamentations. One of the most amazing things about Lamentations is how it is structured. Four of the five chapters of Lamentations are acrostic poems. You know what an acrostic is? It's like one of those alphabet poems. Every sentence starts with a different letter of the alphabet in order, like A is this and B is this and all the way through. The Hebrew poets love to do that. Psalm 119 is like that. Proverbs 31 is like that. But Lamentations is even more carefully structured. Here in chapter 3, which we're going to look at closely, each stanza, like a paragraph in poetry, begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, etc. And then each sentence within that stanza also begins with that same letter. It's very carefully composed. I think that's awesome. Because it says that there's a lot of thought that has gone into this expression of sad thoughts of bad feelings, of lamentations. Jeremiah didn't just dash it off. He worked on it carefully, 
Jeremiah put meticulous thought into how to express his grief and sorrow and pain over what had happened to him and to his beloved city. And he shows us then how to be sad. He shows us how to suffer as a believer, how to practice the lost art of lament. Now, I've promised it before, and I'll just promise it again. Someday we'll do the whole book together, and we'll learn a lot of different principles about responding to suffering faithfully. Today we'll just see a few, perhaps the brightest of them. Today we're going to read the happiest verses in the whole, the whole book, verses 19 through 24. Have you found it? Here we go. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Would you pray with me? Lord, people are hurting here. And those that aren't will at some point be hurting. So we need this. We need both the language of lament and we need the language of steadfast, holding on to a steadfast God. So Lord, give it to us. Help us to stick our mind, our our eyes on this book, our mind on the truth, and our heart focused on you. Get your word into us, Lord, as we get into your word. We pray it in the powerful name, the steadfast name of Jesus. Amen. So I read it to you, and you were already singing the song, weren't you? Great is thy faithfulness. It's right there in verse 23. You can't, almost can't read it without the song, if you know that song, welling up in your heart. Trouble may be normal, but God is steadfast. Our Lord is steadfast, and so is His love. Great is your faithfulness. I love that those precious words come out of this passage of Scripture. Because they don't come out of the happy, dappy, slappy words in the book. The chapter in the happy, dappy, slappy book. They don't come out of good feelings. God's good all the time. The sun is shining. I got blessing after blessing. They come out of this chapter about bad feelings. In this book about my bad feelings. My soul is downcast, he says. This is a passage about suffering and lamentation and being downcast. And right smack in the middle of that is this reminder that God is steadfast. God is steadfast, number one, when it doesn't feel like it. When it doesn't feel like it. Jeremiah tells God that his faithfulness is great at a time when, 
That's not how it seems. I mean, read chapters 1 and 2 to see what leads up to this statement. For that matter, read chapters 4 and 5 to see how it feels after. Things are not going well. The worst thing that Jeremiah could ever imagine has happened. The threats are over and so is Jerusalem. And it stinks. It hurts. It's painful. It's terrible. It's suffering. There's no getting around that. Verses 19 and 20 say this, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. You feel it? The first line there could be taken as a prayer request. If you have the English Standard Version, it translates it, remember my affliction and my wanderings. Lord, don't forget what I've suffered. Verse 20 clearly says that Jeremiah hasn't forgotten. And he, I think, is speaking in chapter 3, not just for himself, but for the whole nation, especially the remnant who either believes or at least will repent. Look at verse 20. I well remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall, and my soul is downcast within me. Have you been there? I love the realism of the Bible. The Bible's not sugar-coated. It's not fake. You know, there's a lot of fake. Big smile. How's things going? Great! The Bible's not like that. There's no sense in the Bible that if you come to Jesus, then your life will be a bed of roses. You'll be healthy and wealthy and well-liked, smiling all the time. People that do that are selling you something. People that say that are selling you something. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Knowing God does not mean an easy road from here on out. No. The Bible paints a realistic picture of life which includes suffering and sadness and trouble. And it even gives us patterns to follow when those times of suffering and sadness come. Divine patterns. I love that about the Bible. It doesn't always feel like God's faithfulness is great, that God is steadfast. Sometimes our minds are full of affliction, wandering, bitterness, and gall. Sometimes our souls are downcast within us. And friends, that's okay. Jeremiah, that's how he felt. He was the prophet, doing God's will. That's how it felt. We should tell God about it. We can pray about it. We can pray like this, honestly. He loves our honest hearts. We can write it down in a song. You ever written a sad song? It's okay to do. It's in the Bible. We can think long and hard about it. We can make it rhyme. We can do alliteration. We can, we can, we can spend some time expressing our hearts, our lamentations in the right way to the Lord. We don't have to pretend that everything is fine and dandy. It doesn't always feel like God's faithfulness is great, but it is. Things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as they feel. In fact, they're often not as they seem. God's faithfulness is great even when it doesn't feel like it. Look at verse 21. Yet I call this to mind 
And therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You heard the turning point there, right? The yet in verse 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Great is your faithfulness. Even when it doesn't feel like it, yet. Do you need to hear this today? Maybe it doesn't feel like it for you right now. Maybe you are in a dark night of the soul. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe God seems distant. Maybe you're very disappointed, confused, bewildered, sad, desperate. Or maybe you're okay today. But you need to remind yourself of this right now so that when those feelings come, and they will, you're ready to call this to mind. Lita put this title on our new history book, Gospel Roots, A History of God's Faithfulness in Our First 125 Years. I'll tell you, it didn't always feel like that to the believers that came before us. But it was true. There have been some dark times for this church. Some of you have particular days that you remember when something hard happened here and it makes you wince every time that day rolls around again on the calendar. But here you are being steadfast and sticking to it because you know that even in those moments, the Lord was steadfast. The Lord has been steadfast for every one of those 125 years, every day of those 125 years. God is steadfast. Number two, every single day. Every single day. Look again at verse 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. The word for great love there in verse 22 is chesed. It's one of those great Hebrew words where you get to spit when you say it. In the back of your throat, chesed. Right? Go ahead. You, you know you want to say it to your neighbor. Go ahead. Don't spit on their face. Chesed. Chesed. You know what that word means? It means God's covenant love. His unfailing love. His loyal, royal love. His love that is promised to His people and can be counted upon no matter what. The ESV follows the RSV in translating it the steadfast love of the Lord. Steadfast love. Friends, it doesn't get any better than that. And verse 22 says that it's because of that steadfast love, his chesed, that we are not consumed. Or another way of translating it would, be, would make the consumed about the love, meaning the steadfast love of the Lord is never consumed. It never ceases. It, it never ends. It's an endless supply, which fits with the next phrase, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His compassions, his, his mercies never fail. His mercy is more, we just saying. What that means is that God isn't moody. God doesn't get up some days on the wrong side of the bed. Aren't you glad that you and I are not God? Sometimes we would just get up and there'd be hell to pay. I don't feel like being compassionate to those people all the time. They don't deserve it. They're sinners. They're, they fail. They're lazy. They don't meet up to expectations. 
bunch of slackers. And today I just don't feel like loving on them. See, that's not the Lord. His compassions for His people never fail. It's not like He gets to like 99% and then uh, ran out of compassion. I love the word picture in verse 23. Everybody does. His compassion, His tender mercies are new every morning. Every morning. How many mornings? Every morning. With the dawn comes a new wave of God's mercy. Every morning. Every single day. Look for them. One of the things that my wise wife often says is that we need to look every morning for new mercies. Yesterday's mercies are yesterday, and God has promised new mercies for every morning. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. We've got to go looking for them. We know they're there. He, he just promised that they're there. We can count on them. Let's keep an eye out for them. Bob and Sylvia have a plaque in their living room. It says this, Every day may not be good, but there's something good in every day. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Look for them. And we're not like Annie. This is not, the sun will come up tomorrow, you know. No, this is not Pollyanna. Yeah, the sun comes up. And yes, there'll be trouble in every day because trouble's normal. But in the midst of all that trouble, His mercy is more. It never fails. It never gives up. Every single day. What does it mean for God to be faithful? It means that He always keeps His promises. Whatever He has said, He will do. We've learned that it may not be on, his, on, on our timetable. It may not even look like what we expected. But none of His promises fall to the ground. None of His promises ever fail. He is perfectly faithful with a steadfast love for His people. Great is your faithfulness. Amen? Okay, so what do we do about it today? How do we respond to this teaching during this Thanksgiving season and, and really every day because trouble is normal? How do we live differently because we've read these few verses together? Because you know, it doesn't necessarily change how we feel. Jeremiah has two and a half more chapters of lamentation to go. I'd love it if lamentations ended at chapter 3, verse 24. And we're just kind of, yeah, going out. Yes, I'm excited. God's faithful. Woohoo! You keep reading. He's still sad. The trouble didn't just go away overnight. It still hurts. You and I might have a lot more sad feelings to feel and to express, even after we've sung this morning and we leave here today. What difference does it make that God is faithful, that God's love is steadfast, What should we do? Same thing we've been doing for 125 years. Trust Him. 
Here are three points of application to take home with us. Number one, say this to him. Say this to him. Say to God, great is your faithfulness. Notice that that phrase in verse 23 is a prayer. He doesn't just say, God is faithful. God's faithfulness is great. That's true. But he doesn't just say that. In the middle of his pain, in the middle of his suffering, in the the middle of his lament, he calls out directly to God and says, great is your faithfulness. You see that? That's important. He says it to the Lord himself. Makes it seem a lot more real when you talk to him. Lord, it hurts. Lord, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but great is your faithfulness. I will trust in you. Lord, I don't understand it. I don't like it. My soul is downcast within me, but great is your faithfulness. Great is your steadfast love. Say that to him when you're suffering. And you'll find that God's compassions are right there with you. Declare to the Lord that you believe that His mercies are new every morning and that you're going to look for them and you will find them. I was praying with one of you this week and that's exactly how you prayed. Lord, please change the situation. But even if you don't, I will trust you. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. I have a new song that I have been loving these days. If, you, if you're with me on social media, you see me posting it over and over again on social media. It's by Sandra McCracken, and it's just called Steadfast. And she talks to the Lord in this song, and she tells him that he is steadfast. The first stanza goes, I will build my house, whether storm or drought, on the rock that does not move. I will set my hope in your love, O Lord, And your faithfulness will prove you are steadfast. Steadfast. Even when it doesn't feel like it. And every single day. Tell him that. But don't just tell him that. Tell yourself that. Say this to yourself. Do you catch how Jeremiah is preaching to his own heart, to his own soul? Look back up at verse 21. Yet this I call to mind. You see that? He says, hey, Jeremiah, listen up. Don't forget. God is faithful. God's love is steadfast. Look down at verse 24. I will say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I wait for him. Or King James, I will hope in him. See, Jeremiah doesn't just pray these words. He reminds himself of the truth of God's faithfulness. He tells himself that the Lord is his portion, his lot, his treasure, his only comfort in life and death, his satisfaction. That's what his portion means. Jeremiah Jeremiah reminds himself that God has great steadfast love and great faithfulness and that it's worth it to endure the suffering which will last for a moment because his joy will last forever. He tells himself to hope in him. All too often we listen to ourselves instead of speaking to ourselves. Right? We talked about this last week. Often we listen to our feelings and we don't talk back to them. Just yesterday I was having a little pity party. Don't ask for the details. 
They're not pretty when I have a pity party. What was I doing? I was only talking to myself. I was only listening to myself. I wasn't talking to myself. Our feelings can be deceived and deceiving. We need to speak to our hearts and remind them of what is true. Hey, Matt, don't forget. It's only because of the Lord's great love that we're not consumed. His compassions never fail. Matt, don't forget that they're new every single morning. Great is His faithfulness. Hope in Him. Matt, say this to yourself this week. God's faithfulness is great. Lance Free Church, we have 10,000 reasons to give thanks. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That's why we've been singing it to each other this morning. Last one, last application. Say this to others. Don't keep it to yourself. Jeremiah wrote this in a poem to be read by others. To be, in some cases, sung by others like we're going to do this morning. It's not a fun song, Lamentations. It's not a popcorn and candy song that's a blast to sing. Woohoo, yeah. But we need songs like this. We need dirges. We need laments because life hurts. But most of the time, we need our sad songs to have this embedded in their middle, hope in the Lord because He is faithful. We know this now even more than Jeremiah did. Jeremiah didn't know about the suffering servant. Jeremiah didn't know what we know about the Messiah. Jeremiah didn't know Jesus. Jesus was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. If anyone knew about being sad, it was Jesus. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Boy, did he ever. What does that mean? That our Savior cried. Jesus felt like lamentations in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary. He's the one who said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because Jesus was the very embodiment of the steadfast love of the Lord. Jesus' death and resurrection was God keeping His promises. And they keep us from being consumed by our sin. It's only because of what He did on the cross that we are not consumed and that we can sing today, His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. And we need to tell other people just how great He really is. Just how faithful. He's too good to keep to ourselves. Say this to others. God is steadfast. Great is God's faithfulness. I pulled this off the wall again. I know I did it last month, but I'm going to do it again. I think it perfectly illustrates this message. A congregation of seven members met in 1965 to decide if they should dissolve or continue as a local church. Things were tough. This church had experienced trouble. This is 52 years ago. We had dwindled to just seven members, and only a few of them have jobs. Those seven members at that point were contributing $75 a week to a pastor's salary. 
and their district conference said that they no longer had extra funds to help out at this time. And they met up at Vera's house, and they said, are we done? Should we close the doors, or should we continue on? Well, the plaque says this, believing they were to continue, they led the way to the conclusion of the first hundred years of history. May their example guide us with similar resolve. And then it lists the seven, what I call the refounders, the steadfast refounders of our church. They didn't pretend that everything was hunky-dory, but they didn't back down either. They cried out to the Lord and they put their faith in His steadfast love. And here we are today. May their example guide us with similar resolve.